Hello, just a little bit of an update on the sound quality of this podcast. I sound like I'm in some sort of echo chamber, as always, because I'm in a different location. I apologise in advance, but hopefully you can still hear me okay. And as always, if you like the episode, please feel free to like, share, subscribe. And if you want to chat to me about coaching, my Instagram is always open for direct messages. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to episode number 97 of the ATPHG team podcast, nearly 100 episodes. I was going to say, are we going to do something? I feel like we need to. What shall we do? We'll have to have a think if anyone's got any great I don't know, I remember last, last year we were like, nearly a 50, let's do something and then... <laughs> Standard introvert planning. We should totally do this. No, let's not do this. Um, but it will have a think. Hi Anna, how are you? <laughs> sorry just butt in <laughs> i am good thank you the sun is shining so all is well with life how are yeah, you yeah i'm well can i just say Anna and i had a meeting earlier and i had on a vest a vest two things one i did comment on the way she looked because her biceps were looking strong and i realized and i commented and i said oops i'm not supposed to comment on the way you look but i did tell dan i was like i just had a compliment <laughs> Working. You were saying like uh, she was saying like this. It was like you know when you go through your hair in a vest, like proper bicep flex. And I was like, what? Um. So yeah, you were in a vest. It was very summery. I am not in a vest. Hi, Lynn. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Maybe we could do something when we're all together in April for the to mark the hundredth oh, podcast. That might work. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe we could like. Oh yeah, that's maybe quite a good idea. Oh, see, this is what we need a planner. No offense, Anna. <laughs> no offense. We'll just leave it to you now, Liz. Um, also, happy International Women's Day. Well, oh, yes. well, yeah, yesterday, Thursday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I don't know what day it is. Anyway, this week. Um, I don't know if anyone saw what the Twitter page that I found. Thank you, so yeah. The yeah. Twitter page was fantastic. If no one's seen it, the the Twitter the the page is called at pay gap app and I don't think they're on Instagram and it was just fantastic they were retweeting every company that said happy international women's day and like shared some women's story from their company they were retweeting it with their gender pay gap for that same company and it was so funny because it was like almost immediately as they got retweeted the original company would then delete their tweet and it's like think what you want about International Women's Day but this is this epitomizes the issue that we have with any of these kind of days of celebrations to support any minority group in any way shape or form there will always be people who use it as just this way to virtue signal and I saw a lot of posts on International Women's Day I, I saw a lot of posts and I try not to I try not to judge anyone's posts for other than anything other than what they are but I can see why people have an issue with International Women's Day when it's just surface level, uh, be what you want. I, fi- like I, I find it quite, uh, I feel like people who say International Women's Day don't understand the point of International Women's Day. Um, but I really enjoyed that, that page. I didn't see anything, any great posts particularly about it other than them. I thought it was great. I thought it was quite interesting. <laughs> Um, it was a lot of law firms had the biggest pay gap, like up to 40, 45%. And people were like really commenting on that. Others were like maybe 15, 20%. And then every law firm, they were calling them out for being like, your pay gap is 42.7%. And I was like, oh, Jesus. 
Jeez. Do you know what? You can never comment on pay gap either without someone saying, oh, the pay gap doesn't exist. Because if you look at people in the same jobs, they're equally paid. And it's like, even if that were the case, the gender pay gap also is um, related to the fact that women, when they have babies, have to take a step back in their career. So yes, they're in lower paying jobs. Yes, then technically they should be paid less. But the reason that they are in lower paying jobs is because they had to take time out to have a child and therefore their career progression is halted as opposed to the man's who's is not. And it's like, that's still a problem. That's still something that we have to work around. At the moment, it's still just like, well, well, women are willing to make that sacrifice to start a family and it's a choice and it's up to them. And of course, that's absolutely true. It is a choice that we may or may not make to put our career on the back burner, but it doesn't mean that that it's right just because we choose to do it. It doesn't mean that it's right that we should re-enter the workplace earning less and further down the career ladder than we would be if we didn't have babies. It's a messy, a messy discussion. But the thing there is like where we choose to have babies and start a family. We don't choose to re-enter the workplace on a lower pay scale and with less respect than we left it with. And that's where the issue lies. Well, yeah, it's totally all our choice. Like we're doing it all. Yeah, exactly that. Like that's what we're here for though, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I saw a tweet recently by a man with a podcast and another man with a podcast together talking on a podcast. And um, they were talking about how women are too are told too often now to focus on their career all the messages that women get now from school is focus on your career focus on your career and the outcome of that is that 51 percent of women now by the time they're 30 don't have babies and if this continues on then the population will struggle because we're choosing careers and so we should be saying less to people to women to focus on their careers which was i thought a great discussion for two white men to have to be honest. What are we meant to do here? I'm, I'm completely lost now. <laughs> I'm not sure, I think. I think we're supposed to have a short career, but not right. like not aim too high so that we can like take a step back, have babies and then continue on, I think. Right. Is this the first time we all fall into the majority? Because we're all in that 51%. Go team! Yeah, although Anna's not 30 yet. 31 yet. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm not 31 yeah, yet either, but like, I'm, I'm just, just. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I bring the average right up. Um, yeah, we do. I also started reading this book called The Unexpected Joy of Being Single. And it's very interesting. I'm obviously very comfortable being single and dating. I love the balance that I have in my life um, with that side of things. But... This, this book kept getting recommended to me through like I read a lot of forums around like um, people who are single mothers by choice or who freeze a right also. so it was recommended a lot and it's really interesting and actually if you're single in your 30s at the moment if you're single you're in the majority and it's like still I know that you guys well whatever still we're in this position where it's odd if it, it's deemed as odd if you're single in your 30s and yet it is the majority for women in their 30s, and especially women with careers in their 30s. It's like, why do we still have this narrative that there's something wrong if you're single in your 30s? Actually, it's the norm, but it's just brushed under the carpet because that doesn't work well for society. We don't want, society doesn't want the norm to be single women living their best lives and doing these things. Not that being single is better than being in a relationship, but it's certainly not 
worse than being in a relationship. And the whole premise of one part of this book was saying, there was a quote in it that said something like, only when single single tin or single dumb, whatever, only when being single is seen as equal to being in a relationship, will people in relationships feel that they can leave bad relationships because it won't be frowned upon that they have chosen to be single. So it's like, we need to remove this demonization or this kind of expectation that people choose not to be single. Um, which I think is interesting and it's quite a good book if anyone struggles with being single definitely recommend or anyone that just loves being single and just wants validation I recommend <laughs> if you're in a relationship maybe not I don't know <laughs> um, okay well, let's crack on with the questions and do you want to go first yes um, I've recently realised that I can be a bit arrogant and I don't necessarily like that about myself I am proud of what I've accomplished and I strive for more every day. How do I differentiate between having pride and being arrogant? Do you think if you're arrogant, you're aware that you're arrogant? No. <laughs> no. I think we've been, we've been through this before, isn't it? In that when you're not used to kind of feeling confident and self-assured, when you start to feel those things, you question it as being arrogant. Yeah, I would think that's probably what's going on. Mm. Um, I have a question as well, like arrogance is not particularly, a, I suppose, a likable trait if you're arrogant all the time. But is a little bit of arrogance, so speaking from somebody who dates arrogant men, this is also an impact of the patriarchy, right? I find a little bit of arrogance attractive in men. And it's really frustrating that a little bit of arrogance in women, we, some people might think, well, that's not attractive, but it is in men. That's just unfair. And that's just the audacity of patriarchy. And I say, if you're a little bit of arrogant, then go and be arrogant a little bit. And that's okay. I think if it's like, if you're getting feedback on it and people are saying, <laughs> you're actually really unlikable to be around, then, then that's the feedback that you want to go, okay, maybe I'll just keep that to myself. But I feel like if you're asking that question, you're not overly arrogant, I would think. No, I mean, obviously I know this client, and I would say certainly not. Len, <laughs> <laughs> uh, question. I have one from Steph's client. Um, so I am quite clumsy and I often nearly injure myself. If I have a big shop, for example, nearly getting hit by a bus, nearly falling down the stairs, getting hassled by a man in the street, etc. Then I get a massive adrenaline cortisol shock, which then, which when it goes back down, makes me feel shaky and gives me a headache. The only thing I have found to cure this crash is to eat something. Is there anything else to do? It isn't like regular stress because of the quick upshoot in adrenaline, which then goes back down. Hmm. First of all, hello, clumsy friend. <laughs> I am fully with you. I fall into holes. I walk into things all the time, um, so I can I can. Really I thought of you the other day, actually. I don't know what happened, but you, you know when you fell down the stairs and spilled red wine everywhere. <laughs> oh, God, <yeah. laughs> I was like, I don't know why that came into my head, but it just did. I was like, Ah, Amelia. <laughs> yeah, that was not set in time, and it was um, a rented apartment at the time, and I had to repaint all the walls because I'd just poured it all up the walls. Oh, yeah, good times. Thanks for remembering that. Um, much appreciated. <laughs> um, so I understand the feeling. It is that physiological response of an increase in your adrenaline, the fight or flight response that you get. 
really what you're looking to do is increase your parasympathetic dominance. Food may feel soothing to you if food has been your comfort mechanism, but it's not physiologically actually going to do a huge amount to you other than give you that kind of feeling of comfort in general. And so it's less about the physiological response. The best way to lower your sympathetic dominance is to do some sort of relaxation technique. And I know that this person said it's not like a normal fight or flight. It is still fight or flight. It's just a heightened fight or flight. So the actual physiological underpinnings where we get, like I said, an increase in sympathetic dominance, an increase in cortisol release, an increase in our heart rate, these things are all still the same. It's just that we feel more. And actually, it can be quite a, not an ideal time to eat because our digestive system actually is controlled by parasympathetic nervous system so we want to have that type of quote-unquote dominance when we're eating to help with our digestion so totally fine to get a little bit of comfort from food but actually thinking about things that generally will relax you so I know I say this all the time but it's genuinely something that I do every single day of deep breathing box breathing with my hand on my heart because the benefit of having your hand on your heart or just even your hand like holding your own hand or having your hand on your skin. Although it sounds a little bit like dramatic, it does provide that skin on skin contact, which does lower the physiological response you get to stress. So there are, there are bits of research that shows this type of breathing actually brings down cortisol levels and reduces sympathetic dominance. So in those situations, which again, I do all, all the time, I genuinely will do some sort of box breathing of four seconds in, four seconds hold, four seconds out, repeat with my hand on my heart until I come back down to normal. Um, I don't know if you guys use any other techniques to reduce that or bring that um, adrenaline rush type thing down. I mean, I can't really, I can't really relate to adrenaline rush, but in in a sense, it kind of reminds me like when my anxiety was really quite bad um and after that like, attack you have the come down don't you but you're just like oh um and I, I mean my my go-to in the moment for the attack would be breathing but afterwards it'd just be kind of like other grounding techniques like I had a spot in my flat that I just used to sit down to and uh, like have a have a hot chocolate or something like that and just completely chill out and let me come back up Mm. yeah I agree it's a lot of time just about resting because you are exhausted um, great okay nice questions question should I say can I can I continue to be as physically fit with my sprints and hip training and lift heavy I still want to be able to sprint as fast but also lift pretty heavily I'm also a little worried about how I will train legs around classes what would you say is an optimal split of strength and Barry's hip classes? And this person has PCOS, so that's why hip training is obviously very helpful for her. I would say from my own personal experience, I'm not like an endurance or sprinting coach, but I find keeping like the hard days hard. So if you're, if you have a sprint session and you're going to train lower body, do them in one day because you're getting them both in the one day and then you're not hitting them like back to back, which would reduce the amount of time you have to rest. 
Um, and obviously like sprints are a shorter period of time than a long endurance event on your legs. So you could do those and your lower body on the same day, which would then give them more time to rest before the next one in terms of keeping strength and performance in your sprinting. They do kind of come hand in hand, but I, I would query whether you are able to perform at like personal best in sprinting and get PBs in strength at the same time as I don't really think that has been proven to be quite possible. It's one or the other. You can maintain where you're at with your strength so that you don't really lose much, but it's, it, it is quite hard to get PBs in both at the same time. Absolutely. You can't optimize everything at once. Exactly that. You can get better at them both, but you're never going to optimize them both. I think of like, okay maybe me two years ago as opposed to me now but me two years ago when I was like bodybuilding and my sister's a marathon runner and <laughs> she'll probably be annoyed at me for saying this we went to the gym and she's she's she um would be doing like enough weight training to support her running and her performance and we were doing like shoulder press and um I think I had like double the weight and I've got a video of her trying to like lift up the dumbbells and I remember thinking at the time that's not that heavy but it's because I was like lifting I don't know I was lifting a ridiculous amount much more than I'm lifting now and I thought about it the other day because I was lifting half of that and then I thought god I used to I remember looking at like when I trained with Libby and I thought that was really light and now that's obviously what I'm lifting and it's like she could treat she could weight train really pretty well but she could run a marathon exceptionally well whereas I could go for a 5k jog fine and but I could train in the gym really really hard and it's nice to have interest in all of these things but you you can't expect optimal from everything it just it's the fiber types that are required are different types of training that are required are different you can't fully recover if you're doing a lot of other things around strength training and or you're running so um I think try not to overthink it in regards to and I'm not sure if this is the same person but in regards to the optimal split of strength and Barry's hip classes it's not that there's an optimal split the reason I think bad like hip classes in general could be quite good they're not really hit they're interval type training hit if you look at what hit actually is is basically like an all-out sprint fully all-out sprint for like I don't know about 30 seconds and then like four minutes rest and then repeat that five times. That's hit. It's not one of these hour long classes. But I think they're good for like cardiovascular fitness. They're good for enjoyment. Um, and you can get some muscle adaptation from those. The reason I kind of feel a little bit reserved around them is that if you want to improve your strength, it's not necessarily optimal when you're trying to improve your strength because you don't recover properly. So say you've done like, a hit Barry's hit class with like I don't know I don't know what they do an average hit class where you do like jump squats or like reps upon reps of lunges and then the next day you go in and you go right I'm going to do I'm going to push my strength here and I'm going to do reps of three to five your legs are going to be absolutely demolished and they're never going to recover so I think an optimal split I would say like a max of two sessions of those types of hit classes a week and then focus like three training sessions on strength training because otherwise you'll just be too tired. You're, even if you don't feel tired, your muscles will not be recovered enough to push your strength training and you're at much higher risk of injury as well. But I'm certainly not saying don't do those classes because they can be fun. 
I would not know. <laughs> How to not get upset when family members and friends do extreme food weight loss things when they don't need to. A lot of my sisters don't eat that much and my mum will often chuck out her carb portion. I think that has influenced me for ages and I find it hard to see when I'm going against that. I think most families have this type of dynamic. If you're somebody in your family that has any sort of relationship with food triggers, you definitely notice a dynamic with your family. Um, I still notice a dynamic with my family, how much I might eat compared to other people or when I might eat compared to other people. And it's not that anyone is right or wrong. It's just that we're all adults and we all have our preferences. And I think the trigger is, the issue is not what they're doing. The issue is what you're telling yourself about what they're doing. So example, if you are eating more than someone else at the dinner table and you get triggered and you're saying, well, they're just not eating enough or they're not eating right. They're eating how they're choosing to eat. The issue here is that you're telling your story that you're telling yourself is I feel guilty because I'm eating too much. And so that's what you want to work on. You want to be like, well, is this thought true? No. Is this thought helpful? No. Is this um, thought valid? No. It's understandable because you're making these comparisons, but it's not helpful. You have to try and take the emphasis off trying to control what other people do or change what other people do or your judgment of what other people are doing and more on why is that actually triggering me in the first place what stories am I telling myself about that situation and how can I change that because I'd say I don't know about you guys but I 100% in my past in the past would have related to that um and I don't know if you've been in some same situations or anything yeah 100% when I was staying with my mum last year she won't eat carbs because you know carbs are the devil and it's I think really important to keep your why in mind when when you're sat at the table or eating with them what are you doing why are you doing it okay cool what do you need to do to ensure that you're you're doing that Mm. Yeah, and I think as well, like whenever you're making comparisons, I know we say this all the time, but whenever you're making comparisons, it's so easy to say, well, why do I have to eat more than them? Or why do I have to eat less than them? It's like you're on such a different journey to your mum, your sister, your brother. You're obviously in different bodies, but also your relationship with food is completely different. Your requirements are completely different. It's so easy just to be at the dinner table and think, oh, like this is all I can see right now but like that's one small meal or one moderately sized meal in a day and and you're not around your family all the time and they're doing other things so you need to try and remove the judgment that you have of other people which is we all have had it ingrained in us to judge other people for what they do I've certainly fallen victim to commenting on what other people eat way more than I would like to admit in the past um but you need to try and pull yourself back on that and focus on yourself Lynn, question. Uh, but kind of similar. Um, what advice would you give to young women for them to implement early on to minimize changes in body composition as you age? My mum is constantly going on fat diets like no sugar or intermittent fasting, etc. I understand her desire to lose the weight she gained in menopause, but I never want to have a relationship with food like that and want to know what I could do to maintain my body composition or weight within reason without damaging my relationship with food. I'm going to say one thing and I'm going to let Anna jump in, but 
I would say you've kind of pulled it back a little bit with within reason there because I do want to really highlight like your body composition is supposed to change your body composition is going to change I I was just doing the washing earlier and I picked a pair of jeans at the side that I used to wear and I almost took a picture and I was like I'm not going to do this and it was the size of jeans that I definitely used to wear like at uni and I it's the size of my thigh and I was like, and I don't even have a lot of muscle in my legs at the moment. And I was just like, oh my God, these used to fit me. And at no point was it like, I wish I was still fitted those that size of jeans. It was just really interesting to see how much my body shape has changed in the last 10 years. Not that interesting, I'm going to be honest, but it was an observation. Um, and I think accepting that your body is going to change is so important and even if you do all the things that we're just about to talk about like resistance training and maintaining your muscle mass your muscle mass is going to go down maybe you'll stop training maybe you'll get pregnant and you'll struggle to train maybe you'll get injured and you'll struggle to train maybe you'll go through a really hard year of your life where you comfort eat all of these things are going to impact your body composition and that's okay I was saying to I think I was saying to you Anna yesterday um I'm comfort eating a lot at the moment because of various things that have gone on and I recognize what I'm doing and I take my chocolate to bed and I'm fine with it and I thought god I'm really probably going to be gaining quite a bit of weight here but at no point was that a judgment it was like yeah I'm a human being and guess what I'm going through a hard time and I'm going to gain a bit of weight because I'm comfort eating and that's totally okay and I think one of the most important things we can do is I'm not saying we should all expect to lose muscle. We should all expect to gain body fat, but we should certainly expect for these things to fluctuate throughout our lifetime. Any, like we can do all the things that are health of habit. We can't stop that from happening. And often when we're trying to stop that from happening is when we fall into bad habits in the first place. Exactly that, I think, as you say, accepting that your body's gonna change regardless, I mean, Lynn shared a, a lovely thing earlier that it's what is it what was it this uh, week two, the, two years ago this week was the last normal week we had before COVID and it, it like it shocked me because I was like no no way and then I was like oh my god it's the 9th of March like we literally got shut down in a week's time and that's been two years mm. like my body has changed an awful lot in two years like I, I don't care yeah, but yeah. it has <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think we look at the first lockdown, nobody had weights unless you owned a gym, nobody did. So everybody's body changed within that first kind of what, six, eight weeks. And we all just cracked on and it was totally fine. But obviously the work that you're doing with Lynn is gonna support you long-term as well. So you A, you have that acceptance in, in changing bodies, but you're building habits around food that are going to last you a lifetime yeah I think that's the thing if, if I was to pick like let's list off some things that we could pick in order to maintain let's call it a healthful a healthful way of living including body composition so it would be things like regular resistance training where you're able to do that regular protein intake every day where you're able to do that and a variety of micronutrients and fiber especially fiber, where you're able to do that. If you look at research, fiber intake is associated with um, body fat levels, um, fiber intake. So super important. Um, maintaining physical activity every day, making sure that you are, I don't mean doing your step count, but most days getting, for, getting outside for a walk, keeping active. 
Um, what else would you say? I would be on the side of getting your head out of your body as such. So not just focusing on, okay, I need to do all these things to make sure that my body composition changes as little as possible over the next 20 or 30 years. But I would focus more on like body functionality, which we have done. Like what other things does your body allow you to do aside from looking a certain way? Being like having more self-compassion. You're not your mum. Like you you are, and this person is an incredible human being like all our clients are. And like we did the, the self-compassion letter and it brought me to tears what she could see in herself, but yet doesn't see in herself, if that makes sense. And it was absolutely incredible. But just doing that more frequently and being a bit more gentle with herself and like getting to terms with our bodies are really going to change, like no matter what we do and no matter how hard we try and kind of accepting it. The other things that you recommended are all going to be beneficial and are going to become ingrained habits over time the more you do them. But I think it's more working on the mindset side of accepting that working on mindfulness, meditation and getting out of the body image and more into what your body's allowing you to do and what it will allow you to do and accomplish over the next 20 or 30 years as well. Yeah. I also think therapy has probably got a huge impact on body composition for anyone that's got any sort of issues with food. Regular therapy probably is, I mean, there's no research on that. There's research on physical activity, regular self-monitoring, food variety, protein intake, exercise, research, fiber, research on all of that. But I would say people who get therapy or support, whether that be a coach or something else, that is probably going to be correlated with um, maintaining a healthy body. Um, his question is it's your turn. <laughs> is it me? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sorry. This is um, Becca's question. Following what you said in last week's check-in, I think stress is a great topic. When you have a high-stress, high-reward job that can become all-consuming, what strategies are best to prevent that stress, derailing progress, and good habits? So lots of stress questions today. <laughs> Weird. I can't relate, obviously. So stress can impact people in different ways, right? I think it's really important to note that some people, when they get stressed, their appetite goes down. Some people, when they get stressed, they tend to overeat to distract themselves from feeling stressed. Um, so it's not like a one-size-fits-all, this will stop you stress eating. And the most important thing is accepting and being aware of the fact that you are stress eating in the first place. Long-term, short-term stress tends to reduce appetite and tends to reduce calorie intake, but long-term stress tends to do the opposite and lead to um, increased hunger, increased food intake and higher BMIs in general, obviously those are averages. So I think that's important to know. Mm. I've got a client, oh, sorry, Anna. Um, I've got a client who was going through like a high stress period to not even try and stop the, the like increased eating from stress, but the next day, so we'll say she had like a stressful evening and would overeat or have food to comfort it. The next morning in her journaling, just ask herself like, what's my stress out of 10? And she came to the realization that she was still stressed despite having the food, but then more stressed because she had done that and it didn't make her feel any better. And that kind of brought the awareness. So it wasn't like a an hour later thing or 
pausing in the moment because there are times when you are extremely stressed or overwhelmed or just not able to check in with yourself in that moment that later on the next day for her was when she could see okay yeah I I overate last night and it has not impacted my stress levels whatsoever they're still sky high I still have a massive list of things that I need to accomplish by a deadline that didn't actually help me and then she could see in that kind of clearer mind despite being still stressed that okay what would actually make me feel better would be doing yoga and going for a walk even though she felt like she didn't have the time for it she did and she made the time for it and that helped so I think that kind of awareness after like a good while after to ask yourself okay measure your stress one to ten where is it now and does it actually help you might be a a way to go yeah I had a conversation with one of my clients today actually and she's she's great she tries to juggle a lot of stuff and we we're talking about just slowing down and her one goal for the last three weeks has been slow down just slow down everything you do just slow down and it might be stopping a minute to take a breath it might be stopping before you eat it might be just before you make a decision just stopping for a second just slow down and I totally understand the high stress high reward jobs of course I do I run multiple businesses and if you can't like like you can relate to that fully but I think that often we need to hold ourselves accountable to say yes I have time to stop and have a cup of tea yes I do have time to stop and have some food and I think it's so easy to fall into this hustle culture this is totally glorified this is not this person by the way but I think it's super glorified now. Oh, I just didn't, I just not had time to eat at all. I forgot to eat. I've just been so stressed and so busy. And it's like, we have to stop glorifying that because one, it's bullshit. And two, it's not admirable. And this is, again, not this client, but in general, you have time to eat. And I think making time to stop to eat will help with stress eating because that is your time to eat. And one of the things that I will always say to EIQ students um, people on AFM sometimes like if you time your day if you're busy time your day split it into 45 minute blocks and this is difficult when you're in a job where other people have demands on you and things like that but you still have a diary you still know what you need most of the time but have times where you say this work block is 45 minutes to do I don't know work to work with my clients 45 minutes and then I've got a 15 minute break where I'm going to go for a walk and then I'm going to do another 45 minutes where I work on social media and then I've got a 15 minute break where I'm going to have my lunch. So it's part of like eating is part of your day. It's not bleeding into your day because a lot of stress eating is just to distract yourself from the stress or it's just to try and like bring down our over emotion, like our emotional state when we're just like constantly on edge. So slowing down and having a bit more structure to your actual meals and holding yourself accountable to say, no busier than the rest of the world I mean this person may well be busier than a lot of the world but I can take time out to do these things it's super important just to add on to that I've had a client I don't know she won't mind me saying this who has had like she's back in the office now so it's a complete change of routine and that meant that her usual go-to kind of habits and morning routine got completely flipped on her head and initially there was that, oh my God, well, I don't know how to cope because I know that makes me feel really good because again, she's in a high stress job. And so I think if you can look at ways of maybe picking just one or two things that you know are definitely going to start your day right or help in the moment when things do get really tough, like, like we spoke about with just the box breathing or kind of 
like a, a five minute meditation while the kettle boils, that sort of thing that can just set you up for the day ahead. Mm. Yeah. I think habit stacking, that kind of, I was speaking to, I was speaking to a client about this recently, like habits, habit stacking, pausing onto your day is really helpful. When, like you said, if you habit stack mindful breathing every, onto every time you have a hot drink, it becomes, it's very easy to sit to, it's very easy to remember to do it and you're there all the time getting a hot drink, especially if you live in Scotland where it is about one degrees. Um, it just adds that pause in. So think about something that you do all the time and, and your calming technique that you can habit stack onto that. I had a client that had some awareness around that. Like she does have a high stress job. She's got two young boys she's like very on the go but she also realized that her I don't have time for breakfast was tied into like previous diet culture well if I don't have breakfast I'm delaying my eating and therefore I have more calories later in the day and she had that like awakening moment where she was like damn I thought I was over that but I'm not and she was like I'm so much nicer when I have breakfast (laughs) which I thought was huge as well because she kept saying like I just I have to just get something on the go and obviously being a compassionate coach I was like okay well could we try different things and then she had breakfast like a couple of mornings one week and went yes yeah, so I've now realized that that's exactly what I was doing like consciously <laughs> didn't know I was doing it and now she like actively makes sure she has breakfast every morning that oh, she yeah. can obviously um but yeah so that, that tied into the, her whole I'm just so busy I can't eat but it was more I'm saving calories for later in the day <laughs> I think I guarantee we've all got stuff like that yeah. I think diet culture rules are so funny you can you can be like think that you're absolutely broken free of all of them and then you have something different that you've not had for ages and you go oh that's that's diet culture I remember um so he did a reel on this probably about three months ago and she said I remember speaking to her to her IFS um, when we were having breakfast and she said, Oh, I'd like don't really have don't really eat breakfast. And I said, Oh, cool. Anyway, moving on. She did a reel and she said, um, I'm not I don't eat breakfast. And I realized actually now that I think that was just diet culture and I didn't really realise that it was. And I thought it was just because I don't like to eat breakfast. And so I've started actively including breakfast in and I think. And so he's unbelievably emotionally intelligent and smart and has been working on this stuff for so long. And I think we all de- like we all definitely will still have those things where we go, ooh, I know I do it with peanut butter and jam. I have to call myself on it every time because I remember when, so peanut butter and jam on toast or bread was our family thing growing up, but we'd always have a supper. And even like maybe three or four years ago when I would see my big brother in the States and he'd had peanut butter and jam and he'd get his bread out and he'd just scoop out the peanut butter and you know, like proper thick, solid peanut butter and jam and I remember looking at it and being like I wish I could have that much peanut butter and jam and not think of it as oh my god that's a lot of peanut butter so even like so now whenever I have peanut butter and jam I'm always like put a proper portion on it's the one thing that diet culture is in my head about I'm like just have a proper portion of peanut butter stop giving it this tiny little spread of it pull yourself together I definitely think that people have got we've all got hidden things in there oh 100% 100% I've never had peanut butter and jam. Never. What? Never, never had it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You two look so disgusted right now. <gasps> oh, dear. That's changing next month, yeah? No, <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. It's a bit weird. Yeah. No. no it's so good. No, I've yeah. never, 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 never had it. Never, ever. Oh, well, man. Guess what I'm bringing to level up. 
<laughs> oh god <laughs> okay next question moving on um how to balance goals and dreams in relation to a weight class based sport uh combat sports fighting and having a good relationship with my body food and weight oh. we will be like oh <laughs> yeah do you know what? I I mean, I'm just I don't really work with clients that have to make weight, but I have worked with one powerlifter, and obviously we were working to improve her relationship with food, and she decided just to move up a weight category because it was easier to maintain without having to consciously try and make weight. Yeah, do you know what? I spoke to, I went to a conference years ago when I thought I wanted to be a performance nutritionist, walls, and um, I went to a conference with, and one of the speakers was a GB nutritionist for a sport that requires weight making, and he was talking about all the research around it and how all of the research says that you perform better when you don't try and make weight, even if you're at the lower end of the next up weight class because of the impact that making weight has on your performance and so even though even if you do it slowly the impact that it has you think it doesn't have an impact the research suggests that actually you're still better off maintaining so I think one thing to to check in is that is it definitely the right thing to be doing to make weight in the first place is super super important because I think sometimes I've, I've worked with quite a lot of people who do who who have to make weight in the past and I think including like semi-professional professional athletes and I think that sometimes we can hide behind it as a reason why we have to keep losing weight when it, like you know it's for the sport so we have to do it when it's not the healthiest thing for us to do and it's actually potentially not the best thing to do for our performance so I think really delving into that is super important and I also think if you really have to do it, then you just have to try and do it in the most inclusive way possible. Like when we do any sort of diet of having like having a bit of variation in your food choices, you don't have unconditional permission to go over, unfortunately. Like even when we're working with people who are who are fat loss clients, we always say you have unconditional permission to eat over your macros because fat loss is your choice. And it's not that we want it for you, we just want you to have what you want. But I think with, if you're trying to make a weight, then you, you don't because you have to make weight for your sport. But that's your choice to do that. And I think owning that and saying, I'm choosing to value that more than I am valuing my relationship with food right now. That's OK. Like There's no judgment behind that at all if that's what's most important to you. Someone asked me this on my story the other day. They said, what are your thoughts on elite athletes who have HA? I was like, I don't have any thoughts. Do I think that they have HA, a lot of them? yes do I think that it's wrong that they're still competing no I think that's what they value and that's okay and the time will come when that's not their most important value anymore and I think we have to take the judgment out of any of this but also take the ownership of I'm choosing to do that and prioritize that more than I am the other thing and and you have to kind of own that decision yeah um yeah. I don't know. <laughs> how to stop worrying about weight gain when working on your relationship with food and changing the all or nothing mindset <clears throat> that's like 
the question, isn't it? Like the question. <laughs> yeah, completely. Um, this is what I love about the podcast because you ask and we like everybody's asked this. It's totally fine. <laughs> it's it's the one reservation that stops people from working with us straight away because we they think that we're going to say your weight doesn't matter and the way that you look doesn't matter, which we never ever 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 do. But it's definitely something that most people who come to us have the fear of quote unquote letting themselves go whilst they do this and. I think you kind of have to think of it as what's the right thing for me right now, as opposed to what is my whole life going to look like when by starting mindful eating. Like it's very easy to catastrophize and say, I've gained two kilograms in the last two months whilst I've become more intuitive with my eating. Therefore, if I keep working on my relationship with food, I'm going to gain lots of weight and get unhealthy and all these other things. But what you're what you're doing right now is Focusing on, focusing on the present and what the right thing for you is, which is improving your relationship with food. And that may look like maintaining weight. It may look like losing weight. It may look like gaining weight. Everyone is different and we have to remove this expectation. Most people, a lot of people, if they've come from a very regimented, restricted background, will gain a little bit of weight and then they'll freak out and then they'll stop and then they'll go backwards. If you're working with us and that's happening, we will push you to keep going because once it's happened, you find a place where your body is at a healthy maintenance level and then you may well drop body fat or you may not, depending on your situation. And I think it's also really important to, to check in with, is weight gain actually unhealthy for me? It might be. And some people will come to us in larger bodies and have to stop overeating first and that might mean that, you, like, that even if, if you're in a larger body, you might still not see fat loss straight away. You might see a little bit of fat gain straight away. But it's about saying, this is the process right now. And I cannot keep repeating everything that I've done in the past and, or, and expect a different result. This is the short term. And when I say short term, it might be three months. It might be six months. It might take a year before you get a really good relationship with food and then you're ready to potentially lose that body fat again, if that is helpful to you. But for a lot of people, Gaining body fat is healthy. And we have such internalized weight stigma around this where we think, we automatically inherently think that weight gain is bad. And I've worked with many clients who come to me who are relatively lean and weight gain is one of the best things that they could possibly do for their health, for their relationship with food, for their food preoccupation, for their energy levels. So check in with yourself in terms of what the right thing for you might be anyway. But you are moving from this place of external guidance of my hips pal and scale weight and other people's opinions and going into internal guidance and where your body moves to when you've got all of this education around food is probably where your healthiest space is going to be for most people. Yeah, I agree. I ask my client clients, anyone that is like working on, I suppose, fat loss or changing their body and relationship with food to just swap the priorities for, for like the first little while. So just put relationship with food and self-compassion first and let fat loss be there in the background, but not the main focus. So not the first thing we address isn't your fat loss progress every week. It's the everything else that we work on. And that can be happening in the background, but it just doesn't mean it's your main focus right now. And when you remove your main focus off it, as Amelia said, you do get to that place where it's like, mm, do I actually really 
need it, care about it, want it that much. Look at all these other amazing things that are happening. But again, it's because we're so fixated on fat loss being what we should all be striving for and achieving 24 seven every day of our lives, mm. which is just so, so not true. Patriarchy mm-hmm. rule. Denise, <laughs> uh, I've been trying to take part in more things I love so that my body size isn't dictating whether I'm taking part in life. For me, this is dancing. However, in taking part in these activities, it's taking its toll on my mental well-being. I'm going to weekly dance classes and we are rehearsing for shows, but the full-length mirrors and being surrounded by smaller bodies is sending my body image and comparison thoughts into overdrive and my self-confidence has been progressively nosediving. A conversation about costumes a couple of weeks ago sent me into a frenzy. How short will the skirts be? Will my arms be covered? Will my body be exposed in a way that I wouldn't normally choose it to be? At the moment, the mere thought of how I will potentially look on stage and how I will stand out, as well as feel uncomfortable on stage, is sapping the energy from me and also my enjoyment from actually doing the dancing itself. So do I need to choose one over the other? Am I not ready to do this? Should I quit for the good of my overall well-being, or do I continue to try to work through this? I'm finding it is bringing up a lot of themes from when, it, from when I did it when I was younger. At that point, I could compensate for the things about me that I didn't perceive to be good enough my body, my looks, by being the best I could be, by working myself so hard to be at the front, to be picked, to get awards, to be perfect. Funnily enough, at 41, I am now no longer at my best, so I don't have this to fall back on or to plow my effort into, so I'm a bit lost. Lots to unpick there. (laughs) I would say, huge well done for doing something that's pretty brave, and getting out there and I think kind of keeping in mind you are wanting to do this to have that fun to have that enjoyment and so if you're listening to those voices and that negative self-talk then you're letting them win so keep showing up for yourself and do whatever you can to kind of not engage with I mean yes it's going to be hard if, if the studio or whatever is is full of mirrors but you don't have to choose to spend time looking at them and you don't have to choose to spend time thinking and comparing your body to anyone else's if you're letting those thoughts take over they're gonna they are they're gonna zap the energy and the fun out of what you're doing yeah again it's not the actions of others it's the and it's totally understandable, FYI, but it's the thoughts in your head and the comparisons that you're making that is zapping you from energy, not, not other people, which you're certainly, again, you're certainly not blaming other people for this. I think we can't tell you what to do, but working through your thoughts around this and I think ask yourself, how will it feel when, I don't know when the show is, but how will it feel in two months time if I've quit and I don't do the show it might feel safe it might feel comfortable you might also feel resentful you might feel like you have let yourself down I'm not saying that you have done any of these things but think about how you might feel by doing it you might think feel relief I don't know and then think about how will you feel in a couple months after the show when you've done it and you've achieved that thing that you set yourself out to do and you've shown that you can do it regardless of these other things 
And again, that could be quote unquote positive feelings, could be quote unquote negative feelings. I don't know what the answer is. And we would never tell you what you should or shouldn't do. This is very much about, I think with any of these types of things, the way that we coach is person-centered. We ask you questions so that you can figure out the right thing for you to do for yourself. So I think, think about how will it feel if I make that choice? How will it feel? How will I feel if I make the other choice? And what are the pros and cons of that? Sort of like a decisional balance of saying what are the risks and rewards for each for each action that I take. Okay. Um, what? Uh, okay. I am wondering how or if I can have a weight loss goal when I'm working on my relationship with food. I feel that when I even think that I would like to lose some weight, it triggers the negative diet mentality and the urge to control and restrict again. And I hate this feeling. Does it mean that it's too early for me to have a weight loss goal? I'm in no hurry, just unable to see that it is possible at the moment. We don't know if it's going to be possible for you. I think come back to the original question, the other question where I was like, is fat loss healthy for you? That's the first thing. I don't know you. I don't know your body. I don't know your health status. Um, I mean, I do know I've spoken to you, but I don't know who asked this question. So you're anonymous. So that's why I'm- Yeah, no, it's not required for health. Yeah, okay. So I think that's one thing is to think about, sometimes it brings up triggering behaviors because it's not the right thing for you to do. So question why you still want to lose body fat if it's not helpful for your health. Again, we- I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having an aesthetic goal at all, right, at all. But question that because sometimes when we try and diet when it's not beneficial for our health, it triggers unhealthful behaviours because it's not helpful for our health. And that is sometimes, not always, sometimes our body's way of giving us a message that says, this is not the right thing for you to do. And sometimes it's useful to listen to our bodies when they're saying that to us. I have had many clients that have worked in the relationship with food and then drop body fat, either for aesthetic or health reasons. Many. I have many clients who um, have restored their relationship with food. I think they want to diet, start dieting, and then they realize actually it's not worth dieting anymore because it doesn't benefit them. So they, they stop. And I think, Anna, I listened to your podcast that you did the other day with, what was the podcast called that you did? Scrubbing In? Oh, yes. Scrubbing in. Scrubbing I was in. going to say scrubbing up, but I think they're very different. They're doctors. <laughs> scrubbing <laughs> in. <laughs> and I listened to you talking about this very similar thing on, on that podcast of the day. And um, I would say when I try and diet, it triggers a bad relationship with food for me, so I don't diet. And that, that's that's totally truthful because it's not my methods that don't work. It's because dieting is not the right thing for me to do in general. It, at this point in my life or in the last few years of, in my adult life dieting has not been the right thing for me to do in my adult life which may change but many of my clients have done it so I don't know if you'll be able to do it or not but I think you really need to question why you want to do it and if it's the right thing for you to do then you will I'm sure that you will be able to if it's the right thing for you to do. Mm, I also think obviously the work that you're doing with Lynn is going to naturally make you feel better about yourself and I mean I can hand on heart say I haven't wanted to diet for well we did a diet when I was a client and I haven't wanted to diet since again my body's changed over the years 
but it hasn't changed how I felt about it at all. And I think that's hugely underestimated what kind of headspace you could be in this time, six months, a year down the line. You fat loss for you might no longer be a focus at all. Mm, you're totally right. It's so underestimated not focusing on how your body looks. And it's coming from a place of privilege that we can say that because fat loss is not beneficial for our health. We obviously recognize that. But once you get to a place where your habits are all healthy, and even if you are dropping body fat for your health, you're doing it for your health, you're not doing it for aesthetics. And not focusing on the way that your body looks is one of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself as a, an adult because the amount of time that it frees up, the amount of contentment that it gives, the amount of stress that it takes off your life is unrivaled, which is obviously the purpose, like why we feel so much purpose in the work that we do. Um, let's do one more question. Is it mine? Um, I've lost it. No. <laughs> um, I'm coming in. Um, do you have any opinions on women's only gyms? There was an interesting debate recently and I could see both sides for and against, but I'm interested in your opinions. Hmm. I know when I first started going to the gym, I used to love the women's room. Like I felt more comfortable in there because I hadn't a clue what I was doing, like not a notion of what to do. And it just felt like a bit of a safe space. And I do think, I do think they have a, a purpose for women to feel more comfortable to maybe try a new movement they haven't tried before and to just generally get familiar with different equipment. My dislike for them is that you have like girly colored, lightweighted dumbbells and not a full selection of machinery and equipment and weights that you might get in the general area of the gym, which is the men's area or, you know, the everywhere area. So there's that kind of argument to it. But I do think for like initially to have that kind of safe space in that little area that's not too big, not too loud for you to get comfortable. I think I, I quite like them. Same. And I also think culturally, some women prefer to train away from men because it's culturally more appropriate for them. And it's really important that we create a safe space for everyone to be able to train. And so I think that's a huge reason why they're important. Do, do I think that women should feel pressure to use them? Absolutely not. But I don't, I've thought about this before in the sense of like, do they do any harm? I don't think so. I think if you're of a certain mindset, you could feel a little bit like, should I train in that room when I actually want to train in the other room? But that's for us to say, I'm allowed to train wherever I want to train and make that choice. I don't think that that we should be taking away the opportunity for women who feel more comfortable in those spaces to train in there just because we feel like we'd feel a little bit nervous about training in the open gym, I think. Yeah, completely agree. And simply echo Lynn in that if they could just be fully equipped, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, I went to a great one in Bath. Um, there's like, I think it's called Watson Gym, and they have the best female women's section upstairs. I loved it. It's why I kept dating the person else that lived in there. <laughs> <laughs> Just using you for your gym. That's all. Um, okay. Thanks, everyone, for your great questions. Thanks, guys, very much for your great answers. Bye.
Bye. Bye.